Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. How many of you all were here last week? Okay, good. Uh, Pastor John came up last week and shared a prophetic word that if you missed it, you can go back to the YouTube and watch last week's uh, second service. And it, uh, it was really, if I had to sum it up into a one-liner, like most, uh, I'll say many prophetic words, um, it, was a, it was a call for repentance. It was a call for repentance, not just from uh, the, the bad churches, but from the church of Jesus Christ. It was a call to repentance, not just from the churches that have outspokenly compromised in theology or in sociology or in whatever areas. Uh, it was a call uh, to the people of God, the church of Jesus as a whole, um, to repent for themselves and on behalf of each other, to cry out to God and to allow him to take a repentant heart and do something with it. And not that there can be a part two to this, um, but as I've been sort of meditating on this word and I've gotten so much good feedback from people over this week, and I wanna thank you, Pastor John, I wanna thank our prophetic team um, just for the hours of meeting and time that you spent discussing, um, praying into this word and really seeking out of it what it was that the Father wanted for our church and how to present that. And I want you guys to know that we don't just like haphazardly say, we do a lot of things haphazardly. We do some things haphazardly, but we do a lot of things haphazardly. And uh, you can check with me later for the actual spelling of that word. But Pastor John, probably like two months ago, came into my office and said, hey, there's this word. And then like a month later, brought it back in, typed out, and read it to me. And then like six weeks later, actually comes up to sharing it. And I'll have you know that, man, the, the division of Satan has been against the prophetic coming into its place here. And I think it's really important that we understand that as a church. On whatever level that you can grasp that at, know that Satan does not want you hearing that call. Because if there's one thing that is terrifying to him, it is not someone knowing that they're a sinner. In fact, he can work with that. For all have sinned and fallen short. Yes, Satan agrees with that. One thing that scares the hell out of him, literally, is a repentant heart. Somebody who hears a call and gets in that low place on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the church and on behalf of a nation that we live in and says, Lord, have mercy. Father, forgive us. And so moving forward from that place, which we probably shouldn't be moving forward too quickly from that repentant heart, but while I'll say retaining that heart of repentance, okay? While preserving that heart of repentance, while protecting that heart, that, um, that heart that's humbled. Hey, unless you humble yourselves, right? That has to happen first. Turn from your wicked ways. The healing won't come, but when we do, the healing comes. And in the book of Ezra, 
we see following the 70-ish years of exile, we see God achieving the desired result in his people. We have books like Daniel, and we see brothers like uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we have prophets who throughout the exile, which by the way, was, was brought about because of their idolatry. Idolatry, it's the same today. It's just the same old whitewashed nasty that it was thousands of years ago. The things that influence us, the things that, that we bow down to, the things that, that draw our hearts away from our first love. But over that 70 years, as prophets prophesied and as leaders led and as doors were opened and as anointed men and women of God uh, were brought into position and into place, the Lord saw what he was looking for. And an expiration date on exile is set, and these folks are brought back. Now, we see, in fact, we did a study in our staff um, about the process of rebuilding uh, Jerusalem and how it started with the altar in Ezra, and then it moved to the temple, and then it uh, was completed under Nehemiah's uh, leadership with the walls around the city. And we talked about that three-part process of altar, temple, and walls, and how even in our church and in our community right now, um, we can track with uh, sort of priority and order, because again, if you've been with us for the last couple of years, you know that order uh, is everything, almost. And so I want to say a couple things about that repentant heart, when the people in exile, when the people in bondage, the people whose idolatry led them into bondage, it was not unlike the cycle that we see going back to the book of Judges, where it was the people of God living out the blessings of God in the promised land that God gave them, and eventually they would do what the Bible calls um, what was right in their own eyes. Now, I think it's really incredible to, um, to read those lines, and I am going to get to my message. I preached like too long of a message and too short of a time last week. And I apologize for that because I think that maybe we should have just spent the rest of the morning um, on our faces. But I will say that when we see this line in the book of Judges that the people of God did what was right in their own eyes, note that they didn't do what was wrong in their own eyes. They didn't willingly do what they thought was wrong they continued to move forward doing what they thought was right. What in their heart they thought was right. The problem was not what they thought they were doing. The problem was the heart that sourced the thought that this was right. And so in the same way, and then they're brought into captivity, and then they cry out to God in repentance, and God hears the repentant heart and has mercy on his people and sends a judge, and a leader would be raised up and that leader would then uh, lead Israel in overthrowing their captors. And uh, they would be brought out of that captivity, out of that bondage, and they, would, uh, and they would be free, again, to enjoy the blessings and the promises of God until they decided to do what was right in their own eyes again. So that same cycle, although its frequency and chronology shifts in, with the ebb and flow of history, it follows us right through the exile 
and right up till today. But I want to point out that coming out of exile, that repentant heart, when the Lord sees uh, Daniel and when he sees the prophets and when he sees the people of God responding to them and when he sees the way that the sackcloth and the ashes and the the true heart of repentance um, was met, he sends them home. And Ezra leads the first group of exiles back to uh, Jerusalem. And so I want to just begin reading, um, if you will, turn with me in the book of Ezra to chapter 4. Ooh, shoot, here we go. Somebody else's Bible. All right. Ezra 4. So Ezra comes back, and under his leadership, he, uh, he's sent, by the way, by a pagan king who is operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And interesting mix, but God uses the leaders of this world. Amen? And uh, even when it's the ones you didn't vote for. Amen? And so, and so as they come back in chapter 3, it says the altar is rebuilt. And he takes great care to rebuild the altar first. Because without the ability to offer sacrifices, I'm going to say that again, without the ability to offer sacrifices, any temple that would be built would be built in vain. Without the ability to offer sacrifices. And so now the altar is rebuilt, the sacrifices are being made, and the temple begins. So the people begin to build the temple in the second half of chapter 3. And in chapter 4, we're going to begin reading. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We usually leave that part out when we're talking about the enemies of the rebuilding of the temple and the walls. That they come and their first request is, hey, let us rebuild with you. For we worship the same God you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, you may have no part in this work. That doesn't sound very nice. We alone will build the temple for the Lord the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of spoilers because we don't have time to read this whole book. But a couple of things that I think are important to point out is, number one, that while this temple is built over a period of a couple decades, that the entire time the, enemy, the enemies of Israel are working against them. But they build anyway. And the temple is completed in spite of whatever is working against them. Nehemiah shows up to build the walls and the enemies of Israel are working against them day and night. In fact, some of your translations will say that that these, these other leaders from the surrounding areas 
that they indefatigably, tirelessly, around the clock, works against the rebuilding of the temple. But the people of God prevailed, and the temple was built. Now, I want to give you a couple of things. If you're writing notes this morning, you may want to write this down. A repentant heart restored people to the promised land, but a steadfast heart would keep them there. Today, we're going to be talking about repentant hearts and steadfast hearts. A repentant heart restored people to their promised land, but a steadfast heart is what would keep them there. See, God didn't just want to get his people out of exile and back into where they used to live. He wanted to rebuild. And notice, there wasn't really any work against building an altar. The altar's a lot smaller. From a distance, it just looks like a, 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 a barrel fire or something, you know, just, just some people in white standing around a bonfire roasting weenies or something. Uh, nothing to be nervous about. A lot of times we, we are in this uh, mindset today that God brought us out of bondage. God brought us out of Egypt. God brought us out of addiction or out of whatever your testimony holds, fill in the blank. God brought us out of that simply to build an altar and to have a place where we can make sacrifices to him. But saints, we've got to go down in history as having agreed with the word of God that obedience is better than sacrifice. And while sacrifice is, is wildly important, that if that sacrifice is not preceded and, and carried out and followed with obedience, we're going to be missing the mark. And the obedience in this case was that, yes, you have to build an altar first. Yes, you have to uh, uh, build an infrastructure around sacrifices. But you're not going to stop there. You need to build a temple. Now, we know, flash forward to the book of Corinthians, we know that we are the temple, right? That we are uh, in our hearts. It's that he desires our heart to be uh, his seat, his throne. And we've talked about this lately, or maybe it was in Canada. I can't remember where I just preached this. But about how, about how the Lord says, as Solomon is rebuilding the temple, the Lord makes it very clear, I never asked for a temple I never asked for a city. I only chose a man. And I found David in whose heart I could have a throne. And so everything else built on top of that, God blessed because it started not with a city he chose or a temple he wanted built, but a heart in which he found a place he could rest. Now, that same thing is true today. And what we're building uh, may not be an actual temple. What we're building is a life. What we're building is a place in which he can rest, a throne from which he can lead. A repentant heart broke down the prison walls in exile. You see, even, even in exile, uh, the people of God, when they're first there, they're kicking against the goat. They're, they're not happy to be there. They want their promised land back, and we see it because Isaiah uh, is reminding them, hey, guys, stop fighting this. This is your time in the corner. This is your spanking. This is because the Lord loves you. 
He chastises, he disciplines, he rebukes, he corrects the ones whom he loves. And he loves you enough to put you in this place. Now build your homes, plant your fields, raise your families in humility. And so they do. And that humility gets God's attention as it has always gotten God's attention. A repentant heart broke down the prison walls, but a steadfast heart built up the temple walls. There's a correlation here between repentance and freedom. But there's another correlation because too many believers stop at freedom. We repent. And, and by the way, that's what leads us back in the cycle again. Remember, I think it was like a couple months after we moved into this temporary room. And I'm just going to keep saying temporary. Just temporary. This temporary temporary, temporary place. Like, we might only be in here one more week. Just kidding. We might. Uh, but repentance that is not followed up by steadfastness is just turning. Turning. Because repentance literally means doing 180 degree turn, right? 180 degrees. But if I stop there, then I will end up doing what's right in my own eyes again, and I'll circle back around. And then I'll cry out because I'm in bondage again in repentance, and I'll turn back around. And then I'll turn back around, and then I'll turn back around. And so many believers today, so much of the church today has never moved past this place because they're just spinning in circles with a heart of repentance, seasoned in with a heart that does what's right in its own eyes. And then a heart that's in bondage and then a heart that feels bad about it and a heart that wants out, so a heart that cries out and then a heart that gets out only long enough to do what's right in its own eyes again. It was the steadfast heart that the Lord needed. If we retain this posture of repentance, if we retain this humility and this low place, if we can preserve and protect this thing that says, God, I need you. I am desperate for you. More today than yesterday. More now in righteousness than I even was in sin. Can somebody agree with me on that? Who needs him more in your righteousness than you did in your sin? Why? Because you're more aware of it now. We got to wake up from this spirit of stupor that tells us that we can just like live normal lives because we one day somewhere in our past repented. The reason why we struggle to build anything is because the repentant heart is designed to tear down. The repentant heart is designed to eradicate and remove. It's the wrecking ball coming through all the constructs of man, all the framework that we've built up for ourselves in pride, in sin, in, in self-dependence, in whatever. Repentance comes through and bulldozes it. But it was never meant to stay that way. Something was meant to be built here. And it's the steadfast heart that builds the temple walls. So let's keep going. I just think it's interesting that the enemy's first tactic is let us build with you. 
Saints, as you build a life, as you build a temple for the Lord, the world wants to influence that process. No, 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 I'm not building that life anymore. I'm building this life. Yes, and the world wants to help you build this life. I'm not gonna do a ton of application today because when I do, it just seems like I'm always on my soapboxes and I don't wanna just be on my soapboxes because everybody gets tired of Zach's soapboxes. So I'm, I'm gonna just stick to the word, to the points here. Not gonna, not gonna do a lot of application. I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit do that in you. So saints, we can't fall for that lie that if the world acknowledges who we worship, that they'll never seek to compromise the integrity of that worship. I'm gonna say that one more time. We cannot fall for the lie because it is a lie and it's a lie that is really easy to believe. In fact, we usually welcome this lie. We like to hear this lie. We want the world to acknowledge who we worship. We want the world to, to, to uh, build laws around us and make sure that our giving is tax deductible. We want to make sure that, you know, we don't have to work on Sundays so that we can do Little League instead. Don't pick that up. I did say no soapboxes, but that's not a soapbox. That's got to be in here somewhere. Just kidding. It's a soapbox. It's only a soapbox because I love you and I care about you and I want what's best for your family. Don't fall for that lie that if the world acknowledges who you worship, that they'll never seek to compromise the integrity of that worship. And I got to ask you this morning, how is the world influencing your walk? How is the, in, the world influencing what you're building for the Lord? Things like our job schedules our extracurriculars. The world has figured out that it can sound a lot like the voice of God. And part of why we're in this mess where we have started to equate patriotism with, uh, with faithful Christianity is because, not because simply America used to be this like Christian influenced nation, but because the America of today has learned how to throw its voice and sound like it's coming from heaven. And I love this nation and nobody has more red, white, and blue except maybe Edwin <laughs> than me. I have, a, I have a 13 by 15 foot flag hanging in my office. And I, and I pray for this nation. And I believe that God will continue to use this nation, but not like he used Israel. He'll use this nation like he used Persia. He'll use this nation like he used Babylon. He'll use this nation like he used Assyria to purify us, to strengthen us, 
to remind us of our first love. You see, we've learned from the world, not from God, to say things like, we need family time. We've got to, we've got to plan vacations. We need rest. Our rest, we, we whitewash it, we sanctify it, because we know that the Bible calls for rest too, and so we'll throw things around like, well, as long as there's a Sabbath day, but our Sabbath, the, the way that we practice a Sabbath is, is not, it's, it's America's Sabbath. It is not God's Sabbath. And, and if you track with that same mindset through so much of what we do, we realize that, okay, saying things like, we need a family vacation, we, we say things like that, and we think we're being good Christians, because we're prioritizing our marriage and we're prioritizing our kids and we're prioritizing quality time with them. But taking family time doesn't make you a good Christian. It makes you a good person at best. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Like, like you can be lost as a baseball in high grass and know that you need family time. You, you, can, be, you can be an atheist and know that your marriage needs a vacation. But we, we keep regurgitating, we keep repeating the things that culture teaches us. You know, I, I really need a better work-life balance, and I've, I've got to prioritize this, and I've got to do, you know, uh, uh, family time for dummies, or, you know, whatever it is that we, we figure out the wrong way, and so we do it the wrong way. A good Christian, saints which I could just say a real Christian, won't compromise their priority of the Lord always getting the first and the best. The first and the best. And see, that's the difference between the repentant heart and the steadfast heart. The repentant heart responds to what happened in that word, like the shaking of the ground, like the earth opening up, like all of our worldly systems crashing. And yeah, God will use all that stuff to get our attention because that's what it takes to get our attention. Because we've turned a deaf ear to the still small voice. So the whispers are going unnoticed, so they have to get louder and louder and louder until the roar of heaven like ends up destroying so much of what we've built things on that we never should have built to begin with because we should have been building his temple. The world wants to influence what we're building. And so they'll keep sounding like heaven. They'll keep, they've, they've learned how to say things that are morally pretty good or ethically along the right lines. And so we'll adhere ourselves to certain politics or we'll connect ourselves to certain books or certain podcasts or, or this or that because we found a way to intermarry and intermingle those things with what our spirit man knows to really be true. And it's dangerous. You know who these people were? These people who were, uh, who wanted to help? It's interesting, but um, some cylinders uh, were discovered not that long ago. Um, and I think there, some British ar archeologist found these, um, these cylinders, and there was Assyrian inscriptions 
that, that proved this story in secular history. And basically what happened was, as the, and this, is, this was smart. Babylon knew what it was doing. Um, when they would move everybody out and into other places, they wouldn't just leave a city vacant. They would bring other exiles that were taken prisoner from their homeland and move them into the place that was now vacant. And so this group of people were folks from other surrounding tribes and nations and things like that that had been conquered by the Babylonians and had been brought in to inhabit the city that once belonged to the people of God. And even though the vast majority of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, of Jerusalem was taken away, there were still some people, he, they, like women and children would often be left uh, there while the men were taken to go to workplaces and things like that. But what happened was as these other people groups moved into Jerusalem in their exile, they intermarried with the women and the generation that was growing up, the children of the Hebrew people. And they formed a mongrel race that we would come to know as the Samaritans. This group of people were the earliest ancestors of the Samaritans. And these people that wanted to influence, that wanted to, to say, hey, we're worshiping God too, they actually weren't lying. When they came in, uh, an, an order had come down and if I'm getting all my history right, an order had come down um, after Babylon was taken over by Assyria. An order came down and it went something along the lines of, hey, we're going to keep some of these native practices happening. It's kind of like how when we came through America and we set up Indian reservations and we said, Native Americans, you stay there and you do your thing. Build your teepees, worship your ancestral gods, smoke your peace pipes, and all that kind of stuff. And so they would do the same thing. And there was some interesting uh, stewardship in the preservation of culture. And so they allowed these gods to be worshipped, and Jehovah God was one of the gods. And so as this Samaritan race begins to develop, they start to worship in some way this god. Now, what's interesting about that is they brought in with them a lot of Babylonian superstition. And so what it rendered was a worship of the, the God that the Israelites knew, but it had been intermingled with all of these other practices. Sound familiar to anybody? So the Hebrew people coming back having now been purified by their exile, having been purified by a heart of repentance, coming back fresh out of that fire, out of that wine press, and saying, okay, God, we get it. No more idols. They come in, and they, they're not stupid. They're observant. In fact, maybe they're more sensitized than they have been for generations. And they see the superstition that has been attached to a people who are living in their city, and they say, no. No, no, no. That cannot play a part in what we're building here. Here's an interesting thought. The original temple, Solomon's temple, the, one of the seven wonders of the world, 
It was actually built using foreigners. They brought in artisans, craftsmen, masons, and, and folks who were phenomenal craftsmen uh, in, in building. The Hebrew people of everything, they were, they were never really famous for their building. So they outsourced it. And the result was a temple that actually looked more like man's version of glory than it did God's. God's glory lived in a tent. So God wants his temple open to outsiders but not built by them. And somehow we have a lot of trouble with this balance too, don't we? Because everybody, like, like the church is so divided today between like these conservative people that are like, we've got to keep this pure. We've got to keep this. We've got a tradition. We've got to make this thing, you know, uh, uh, holy and righteous. And there's a big problem there with saying we've got to make anything holy and righteous. We've got to keep this room a certain way. We've got to keep these songs a certain way and we'll die on this mountain. And then you have another group of people who feel like the whole reason that church exists is for the people who are just coming through the doors. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I will get like right down this middle aisle. Because even as I'm saying this, you're like, isn't that right? Isn't that what this is for? No. The church does not exist for the lost. The church exists for the Lord. The church also does not exist for us to keep things the way that we like them, the way that we think is safe, the way they've always been. The church is for the Lord. So, God wanted a temple that was open to outsiders, not built by them or for them. Understand that? Good. Okay. So, what does he do? What do they do? They discouraged, frightened, and bribed. And I want to take just a couple minutes here because as I read that line, uh, it's over two verses there. As I read that line, they discouraged, frightened. Can you just pull those two verses up? It is four, uh, four, and five. Four, four, and five. So the local residents, the local residents, the people who are already there, and saints, I don't care if you're a second or third or fourth or fifth or 100th generation Christian, the superstitions are already here. Don't let them influence what you're building. There are people in our church today who carry a torch for superstitious religion. And we have to be careful not to block them out, but to not allow that superstition to affect what we're building for the Lord in our heart right now. Superstition. Well, I should probably preach a whole other message on that because there's a lot there. I don't just mean like mystical superstition. I mean, we attach value to things that are not valuable. I know um, one of my favorite things is that somebody in Ashley's past in your family, what was the one of the things that you can't eat cold pork after five on a Thursday? Sundays? You can't eat no warm pork. You can eat cold pork, not warm pork after five o'clock on Sundays. Now, there may be some health risks associated with that. I don't know. But there certainly are no spiritual risks associated with it. 
but that's just one example of one of these things. And let me tell you something. My, my grandparents were my grandma and her sister, who I think of as my grandparents because they were kind of like tag-teamed us. Um, they were wicked superstitious. And they loved the Lord like, like, like people don't anymore today. They loved the Lord. But there was a fear in them. There was a fear of not eating cold pork or warm pork after five on a Sunday. But it was some other nonsense. It was some other stupid thing. You can't do this. No snowballs on Sundays. That's one of Kim's superstitions. <laughs> Just kidding. Why, why is it? We make up rules for ourselves, but why do we make up rules for ourselves that weren't ever from the Father or His heart? Because we're afraid of something. Why are we afraid of something? Because the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate them and hinder the work. Man, I read that and I was like, wow. Could I find a line in the, the, the Old Testament that was more fitting for the church of today than, than people worldwide? And, and no matter where you go, I mean, oh my God, the, the, the superstition, the weird worldly beliefs that we have intermingled into what we do, the way that we, we have either said, okay, you can help us build this thing. World, show us what's important. Well, your wife's important and your kids are important. You know, happy wife, happy life. That is not in the Bible anywhere, by the way. <laughs> Superstition. We're going to come up with our own fiddler on the roof. It'll be called Riddler on the roof. Superstition. That's the problem. That's one of our superstitions. Men of God. That if I can just live my life for the sake of keeping my wife happy, things will be good. And the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people. They hired counselors against them. Ashley and I are big advocates of Christian counselors. And, uh, and I know that there are therapists that maybe you've seen, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists and people that you pay an astronomical amount of money to sit on a couch and listen to you talk. And the deal is, is that even if, even if we're pulling some things that are also biblically true into our prescription, that's not what God calls for. He sent the purified heart of Israel back to rebuild a temple. And, and with it came orders and instructions. You are to do this alone. 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 Like you with the repentant heart. You who have experienced the bondage of idolatry and you know where it lands you. You who I have now brought out of that. We talked a couple months back about being unequally yoked. And man, 
I did not expect the feedback that we got from that. But just the people who were like, whoa, I got so convicted. People visiting from out of state and they were like here for that service to hear that word, to come to that altar call. Because why? Not because they're bad or terrible people, no. But because the local residents had joined in with what was being built. Zach, aren't we supposed to be of the world? How are we supposed to show the kindness? How are we supposed to do the whatever? Man, that, that, this whole idea of being for the world, man, we, we have gotten so clouded in our vision. We've become so blinded in an effort to create an environment that is satisfying to the world, saints. We have ended up creating an environment that is repulsive to the Lord. And yet he says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men, not all Christian men. If I be lifted up, and he says it, it says in the gospel, he was referring to the cross. If I be lifted up the way I gave myself, the way I poured myself out, I'll draw all men unto me. And then we wonder why people aren't coming because what we end up lifting up are all the, the, the good ideas the world gives us for our temple to be built. So these three things, and we're going to close, they discourage, they frighten, and they bribe counselors to frustrate them. So um, this word discourage means uh, to cause to withdraw to abandon or let drop. I think that's what happened to the people of God over and over and over going all the way back to judges. I think that they got discouraged. They saw what was being built in the world around them. They saw how much fun the other kids were having in Little League. Oh, shoot. Bring that stool back up here. They saw like how how important it was for all the other kids to go to those colleges and get those degrees. They saw how practical and, and sensible it was to live with someone for a little while before you marry them to see if it's somebody that you really want to marry. I said I wasn't going to do application this morning because I don't want it to get in the way of how the Holy Spirit wants to apply it to you. They saw how much fun the world was having when it took Sundays off over the summer to do their own thing. And so they incorporated it into, I'm raising a Christian family. You are. You are. And no one can take that away from you. And no one is sending you to hell for it. But I want you to know that at the same time, we are not able to engage in or accept the superstitions and the practices of the world without also compromising the integrity of the worship that really truly builds the temple the Lord's asking for. People are afraid to clap now because of last week. The second one is to frighten. Frighten. So what do they do? They frightened. And that, that word... It, it, there was one sort of rendering that was along the idea of like terrifying, but really uh, as a verb, but really 
it, it belongs to the concept of nervousness and anxiousness. The frightened state prevented people not from continuing to build, but it, it caused them to build always looking out of the corner of their eye, not confident of the work going forward, not confident that, that we can really get this thing done. No, it was constantly to the left and to the right. It was that kind of frightened. Again, as believers today, the nervousness, the anxiousness, the fear that, well, what if this comes up against us? Well, what if that comes up against us? Well, what if what, if what the enemy did yesterday, he does it again today? Man, I am so sick of the fear. I am so sick of, of believers being so afraid. They're more afraid of their past than they are afraid of missing what God's calling them to in the future. How can that be us? How can that be? That everything we say that's God-related is laced in fear. Well, we might, we might miss this. We might miss this. I would dare say to you, you already have if you're talking like that. You've already missed it. You've already fallen for the superstition. And finally, they bribed counselors to frustrate. And that, that um, Greek, uh, it's not Greek, it's uh, Hebrew, sorry. Um, that is an interesting phrase but basically, the verb there, the action is to break down and to make ineffectual their efforts. Now, I think it's interesting because it doesn't mean that they can't still look busy. It doesn't mean that they can't still do things that really powerful people of God do. It just means that they were ineffectual or unfruitful in doing it. They didn't necessarily just break down the work. They broke down the effect of the work. And I see that. I see that. And I wish I could say, oh, well, the answer is if we just all came to the altar or if we all just came out on Tuesday night prayers or if we all just came out to the house of prayer meetings or if we all just really entered in in worship. But in truth, at the end of the day, as much as I always want to be the guy that says worship fixes everything, I'm going to tell you something. We can do all of those things ineffectually. If we're listening to the superstitious counselors of this faith, see, we, th we think that, there, well, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, unless those counselors have been bribed by the enemy. <laughs> so if we're listening to the, that, that counsel, we will keep doing what we're doing, but our heart will be distracted. And so on Tuesday nights, we can pray and intercede. We can come down to the mic and prophesy. We can sing through these songs and, and go to the classes and do all everything uh, the, the way that it's supposed to be done. But what is intended to be built never really gets built because the people's hearts were divided. Would you stand with me?
Is there a joke that needs to be shared with the class back there? Thank you. Thanks, bro. You're the best. Here's the spoiler alert if you've never read the book of Ezra. Two chapters later and several letters later, which, by the way, I think it's pertinent for us as a church because we were called to build right here in Swansea, Massachusetts. So these people, when they realize that frightening and discouraging and bribing counselors to uh, hinder and distract the work, when they realize that it's not having the results they want, why isn't it? Because the heart of repentance was met with a heart of steadfastness and they kept building anyway. So these guys finally say, okay, we're going over their heads. They write a letter to the king and they said, hey, these people are a problem. They've always been uh, the source of insurrections. And, you know, they're always, you know, it's, it's these Jews. They just, it's just a nonstop issue. You know, they, they, they're always, you know, imposing their rules. And they're, they're, they've looked through your history books. They've been a problem, king. So the king checks it out. Story checks out. God's people are a problem. They're a problem for the world to operate the world that wants to operate. When we're no longer a problem for the world, we're not a solution for heaven. I'm just going to say it just one more time. When we are not a problem for the world, see, that's the issue I have with the churches that are trying to be more palpable with the churches that are leaving out truth about things like homosexuality and drug use and, and, you know, premarital sex and all the stuff that nobody wants to hear about, we cease to be heaven's solution for the brokenness here. I need to go to a church where I'm welcome. Well, being welcome is a way different matter than turning a blind eye to the sin that will destroy you. We have to be part of the answer, saints. We have to be. So, spoiler alert. The letter goes to the king. The king checks it out. He's like, hey, these people are a problem. He issues back a decree and says the work has to stop. Now, these are the people who had been sent by a previous king in the same administration. Had been, they had come, they had started building, and the, issue, the order comes, you have to stop. And they stop until a couple of prophets show up. And the prophets come back and they say, hey, we know what the king said, but there's another king. There's another command And you think that it was Cyrus that sent you here the first time, but it wasn't Cyrus. It was the command of the Lord to rebuild the ancient ruins, to rebuild the hearts of a people not intermingled and not intermarried with this world. That wasn't just Cyrus that called for that. And because it wasn't just uh, the, the authority of this world, 
that started it, it's not going to be the authority of the world that stops it. And so a couple of prophets show up. Haggai. Who else is it? Zechariah. Zeruiah. A couple of prophets show up and they say, listen, the son of Edu. And they say, listen, let's get this thing going again. Because truly there is no power on this earth or in hell that can stop what God wants to do. And when we first moved into this building, like four years ago, we were over there on the front porch of the steps and I was praying about it. I'm like, God, did we miss something somewhere? Did we miss something somewhere? Because this just seems really hard. And it's taken a long time. And at that point, I thought three weeks was a long time. And the Lord made it so clear. He said it just like this. Small town politics have always tried to stand in the way of a move of heaven. Hang on work. And he led me to Ezra. And he led me to Nehemiah. And I realized that when they stopped, it was never because God said stop. It's because they forgot who their authority really was. And when the prophetic voice was spoken over that people, they were reconnected to that fury, that fire. And they were a people again possessed by fire to see God come and move the way that he wanted to. And they flipped the locals the bird and they went right back to building. I told you this wasn't my Bible. I don't know whose version this is. And then the people got mad again and they wrote one more letter. And they said, hey, go back and find out if what they're saying is true. Were they really sent here? And so now the king goes back. And I think there's some spiritual significance to this, but I'm not going to go down that road right now. They go back and they, sure enough, they find the decree. There was an edict that was issued by Cyrus. And when the king finds that decree, he says to the locals, he says to the ones who had frightened and discouraged and frustrated the efforts of the people of God. He says, not only are they to continue, but you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it no matter what they need. In fact, I want you delivering home-cooked meals to the work site every day. It says it, bring oil and wine and wheat. And if they need to make sacrifices to their God, you better show up with something to kill so that they can make whatever sacrifices they want to make. Because this thing will be done. And saints, I want to speak it over your hearts this morning. Wherever you've withdrawn, wherever the superstition of of past generations of leaders has influenced you wherever the world 
has played a part in the building so far, I want to speak over you this morning that it will be done. The work will be completed. This temple will be built and his glory is filling it even as we speak. So Father, we thank you for your glory in this house. We thank you, Lord, that it wasn't just the heart of repentance, but Lord, that by your spirit, we can have a heart of steadfastness as well to continue with you to see what has begun be brought to the day of completion, not by our might, not by our power, but by your authority, by your spirit. And so, Lord, we come into agreement that whatever it is that you want to build in this place will be built for your name. Whatever you want to build in these hearts will be built for your name. God, I pray that you would reveal to us places where the integrity of our worship has been compromised. Places, Lord, where we have uh, forgotten to put the sacrifice first, but Lord, to make sure that it was bathed in obedience. God, forgive us, Lord, for the places where we've gotten off track, but Lord, from turning from those places, God, would you find in us steadfast hearts, fearless hearts, God, pursuant of what it is that's that it means to see your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We give you the glory and the honor and it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. This is Pastor Zach and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you and have the best day of your life.